Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Wednesday, December 13th. If you're following the news from the Middle East, you probably know that some of the global debate about what's happening in Gaza and Israel has been taking place in New York. That's where the U.N. Security Council last week and the U.N. General Assembly yesterday voted on different resolutions calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. Now, in both cases, the large majority of countries voted for the resolution. The United States voted against. Neither resolution seems likely to matter very much to the protection of either Israelis or Palestinians. So we're going to take a step back now and ask, can the United Nations play a meaningful role in this conflict? Um, Its own website describes the UN as, quote, the one place on earth where all the world's nations can gather together, discuss common problems, and find shared solutions that benefit all of humanity. Unquote. The UN was created just after World War II, as many of you know, with a charter that begins with these words. We, the peoples of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women, and of nations large and small." Unquote. That's the opening of the UN Charter. The UN succeeded. The League of Nations created in a similar spirit after World War I, but which failed to prevent World War II. Is the United Nations doing any better? What is the United Nations today? To what extent does it matter in the world to the aims that its charter cited there, saving people from the scourge of war and promoting human rights? And can the United Nations play a meaningful role in resolving this conflict or protecting civilians from Hamas or the Israeli military. With me now is the New York Times United Nations Bureau Chief, Farnaz Fasihi. Previously, she was a senior writer and war correspondent for the Wall Street Journal for 17 years, based in the Middle East. Uh, In that role, she was on this show multiple times. Farnaz, always good to have you on the show. Welcome back to WNYC. Uh, Good morning, Brian. Always good to be on your show and talk with you. Thank you for inviting me. I want to try to do two things in this segment, talk about the news coming out of the U.N. regarding the conflict and look more deeply at the role of the U.N. in the Middle East and in the world. So let's start with a refresher on the difference between the U.N. General Assembly and the U.N. Security Council, because both uh, bodies voted on ceasefire resolutions in the last few days. And I'll bet a lot of people listening actually don't know what the difference is. So what is the difference between the Security Council and the General Assembly, where would you start? I would start by saying that the um, General Assembly is uh, the uh, collection of of 193 member countries that are part of the UN, who are members of the UN. This is sort of where uh, collectively member states uh, get together to debate a a particular issue in that General Assembly hall, the the famous one that we also see once a year during the, uh, the annual gathering. Uh, and on, you know, they they meet regularly on multiple issues. So this is this is really the the representative of the uh, wider UN membership. <clears throat> and the Security Council 
uh, is a, a body that was created uh, in the aftermath of World War II with specifically the task to um, secure and uh, protect the world from conflict and you know threats of um, stability and um, insecurity, right? So that their particular job is to make sure uh, that to prevent wars and also to mitigate and, uh, and end wars. Um, it has 15 members, five of them are permanent, the United States, Russia, China, France, and the United, um, and England, the United Kingdom. These five members have veto power. The other 10 members take two-year rotating roles as part of the council. Um, and the resolutions that the Security Council adopts, um, and as you pointed out, that the council is, has tried uh, a few times to adopt a, a ceasefire resolution for this particular war, uh, and the U.S. blocked it and didn't allow it during the Russia-Ukraine wars, multiple resolutions about Russia's invasion of Ukraine were blocked by Russia. So that's that's really where um, kind of like dynamics of um, political dynamics and between world powers come into play. It's it's you often see the it's really a reflection of the uh, of of the divisions and polarization of the world we see. So often you see Russia and China um, take a mutual standard position together, and and U.S. and its European allies um, together. On this particular issue, the U.S. has really been um, the lone um, voice in opposing a ceasefire at the Security Council in the Gaza conflict. That uh, there was a resolution on Friday. Um, calling for an immediate uh, end to the fighting because of the humanitarian situation uh, is, of course, catastrophic, uh, as UN officials and aid agencies have been saying, uh, but also because um, the Secret Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, um, invoked a rare diplomatic tool at the UN called Article 99, uh, in which it allows the Secretary General to demand uh, a ceasefire from the Security Council, uh, demand that the Security Council actually announce a ceasefire when a conflict threatens the global uh, security and instability where it has wider reach. And um, the resolution was put forth by uh, the only Arab member of the Security Council, United Arab Emirates. Uh, 13 countries voted in favor. Uh, the UK abstained, uh, but the US vetoed it. So it effectively, uh, the, the vetoes that the U.S. has exercised have blocked and paralyzed the Security Council uh, in adopting resolutions that would end this war. Right. Um, this distinction between the Security Council resolutions being binding and the General Assembly, the larger body that includes all the nation's uh, resolutions being non-binding Let's say the Security Council had voted for a ceasefire. Does it then have the power to enforce it in any way? No, the Security Council and, and the UN don't have a, a military task for force or an army or anything to enforce anything, right? Uh, but Security Council resolutions become sort of internationally, are considered international law. They're considered binding, uh, which what it means is if a country then violates uh, the the resolution, then the council can take other measures. It can uh, discuss and impose sanctions uh, on that country. 
uh, as it has, for example, done with uh, with Iran or with North Korea. So it can, it, you know, over the nuclear and, and uh, ballistic missile programs and uh, uh, and and whatnot. Uh, and you know, in in fact, there is a Security Council resolution that was uh, that was adopted on the against the expansion of um, settlements in the West Bank, um, calling for Israel to stop the expansion of settlements. Uh, but they don't have a way of enforcing it, right? So if if Israel or other countries, uh, you know, don't abide by it, then they have to think about other other punitive measures. So, so what the I Security mean, Council say, passes I mean, is considered mm -hmm. international law, but right. there's no enforcement mechanism. Right. The enforcement mechanism would be to then consider further punishment uh, if a country violates that resolution. Here is the current president of the General Assembly, the ambassador from Trinidad and Tobago, Dennis Francis, calling for the passage of yesterday's resolution. In the name of humanity, I ask you all once again, stop this violence now. And the Security Council, I'm sorry, the uh, General Assembly vote yesterday after that call was 153 in favor of the ceasefire resolution, 10 against, plus 23 abstentions. And here is U.S. spokesman John Kirby on MSNBC this morning saying in brief why the U.S. remains opposed to these otherwise widely popular ceasefire resolutions. We don't support a general ceasefire at this time. Uh, that basically would leave Hamas in power in Gaza, basically validates what they did on the 7th of October, and of course gives them uh, a much larger uh, amount of time uh, to restock, restore themselves, and to, and to refit and plan and, and conduct additional attacks. So Farnaz, can you explain from the other countries' perspective, uh, the majority of countries, why won't these resolutions include condemnation of the October 7th attacks, which the U.S. says is missing, or I've also heard that um, they, they don't demand that the International Red Cross be able to visit the hostages. So the U.S. and Israel consider these ceasefire resolutions too one-sided. Why would other countries argue that they are not if they don't seem to condemn Hamas's violence against civilians and only Israel's? One of the major divisions, and also in uh, both, with, as you mentioned, with the Security Council resolutions and this one, was U.S. Uh, U.S. saying that they that, that partly the reason they can't that the U.S. doesn't want to vote for it is because it doesn't um, the resolutions don't condemn Hamas. The uh, the countries, some of the countries that explained, uh, inclu including Pakistan, some of the uh, council members that. Have said why uh, it, it have explained that it, that they would uh, they don't want that they oppose having Ham only Hamas called out uh, if they and and said if there's there's a language in a resolution that's that calls out Hamas for the terrorist atrocities and terrorist attack on October seventh then there must be also language about Israel's um, occupation of Palestinian territories over the past 75 years. And also yesterday, Pakistan's ambassador said that that 
uh, they want to see language in the resolution that says as Israel was the perpetrator uh, of uh, of the uh, violence in uh, or the uh, you know what's happening in Gaza. So I think that's the that's the division uh, that that uh, that is blocking or preventing from that kind of language being there. Because the opponents say, if you want to call out Hamas, we want to also call out Israel. And to Israel's and the U.S.'s contention that a general ceasefire would allow Hamas to restock, John Kirby used that word restock in the clip, and stage more October 7th, um, what's, what's the sense of the world regarding that fear and possibility if the ceasefire doesn't require... Hamas disarmament too. The um, the le le level and scale of the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza that the UN uh, officials who were in charge of aid agencies and humanitarian relief work and also Palestinians uh, is ha has reached proportions that. Uh, the UN has said, you know, the head of the World Food Program, the Secretary General, um, Martin Griffiths, everyone who's who's in, engaged in humanitarian aid relief, have said that uh, because uh, there's no safe place in Gaza, there there is no safe enclave or a place where civilians can shelter and aid work can be done, short of an actual permanent ceasefire, they can't really deliver. Uh, that humanitarian aid, they can't get the scale of, um, you know, essential needs, food, uh, fuel, uh, water, medicine that is needed. Uh, disease is spreading uh, as the conflict goes on because there are, you know, 30, 40,000 people uh, living in one school, using one bathroom. The lines to, to use the bathroom are often four or five hours long. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's no services, there's garbage, sewage, there's no food. So all of this is creating an environment that, uh, that, uh, the majority of countries and, and UN officials calling for a ceasefire say that we can't really save Palestinian civilians or help them if the war continues, if the airstrikes continue, if the, um, you know, military invasion, uh, continues. Uh, in, in calling for a ceasefire, they haven't, uh, they don't necessarily say that, oh, we oppose Hamas being dismantled. Uh, they just want the, 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 um, the protection of civilians and the fighting to end. Uh, and, uh, I guess for, um, you know, diplomacy to, uh, sort of resume. Right. That seems to be the dire situation, uh, in Gaza. You know, there, there, there are reports of 15,000. Civilians killed, about 70% of that number are women and children. Um, two thirds, about 80% of the 2.2 million population are displaced. Um, a, a lot of the infrastructure in Gaza is completely demolished, including, um, you know, uh, apartment buildings or schools or hospitals and uh, things have collapsed, right? Uh, so if the fighting continues, it makes it very hard to, from the viewpoint of, uh, uh, of humanitarian work to help the people there that are stuck and trapped there. Now, for the last few minutes of this segment, I want to turn to the rift that seems to be widening between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu and whether that has any implications for what might happen at the UN next 
And for those of you just joining us, our guest is the UN Bureau Chief for the New York Times, Farnaz Fasihi. Because yesterday, folks, in case you missed it, even while the U.S. was voting against the ceasefire resolution at the United Nations, President Biden was making his most serious public condemnation yet of the way Israel is fighting the war. It was to a group of donors. It wasn't on tape, so I can't play the clip, but I'm going to read from the CNN version, quote from Biden. I think he has to change, referring to Netanyahu. And with this government, this government in Israel is making it very difficult for him to move, uh, Biden said, calling Netanyahu's government the, quote, most conservative government in Israel's history. It says Biden warned that support for that country's military campaign is waning and heavy bombardment of Gaza uh, and added that the Israeli government, quote, doesn't want a two-state solution, unquote. And Biden said right now Israel, quote, has most of the world supporting it, but they're starting to lose that support by the indiscriminate bombing that takes place. And certainly Israel would disagree with that characterization of the bombing being indiscriminate. But it's big news that President Biden, of all people, used that word yesterday. Uh, so, Farnaz, how different is that to your ear from anything Biden has said publicly before? And is that sentiment reflected in any way by U.S. diplomacy at the United Nations? Well, I think that as pressure, uh, there's, you know, pressure is built uh, at the UN and, and uh, you know, diplomatically on, on the Biden administration to, um, uh, you know, do more for the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and uh, and pressures of the ceasefire. Uh, I mean, I, I think we mentioned it in our story, too, that uh, yesterday's vote at the General Assembly uh, with the U.S. being one of uh, 10 countries and in the company of, you know, uh, uh, a minority with Guatemala, Liberia, uh, Paraguay, uh, you know, uh, these were the countries that the U.S. was in the company of and against the ceasefire. So it really showed the vote really underscored that, that uh, the U.S. and Israel are uh, isolated globally on their position uh, to continue the, the the military offensive and the war in Gaza, uh, and and that kind of pressure must be uh, building up uh, against the, the the Biden administration and move. You know, we we see some of the the uh, rhetoric and the language also changing here, uh, where um, you know the UN ambassador, the U.S. ambassador. Uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield, when she gives speeches, she she does say that you know the U.S. Um, is absolutely calling for protection of civilians. It uh, we've seen the phrase that Israel has a right to defend itself, but how it defends itself matters, right? So so we're we're seeing some of that frustration or the pressure that the U.S. is facing reflected in the language, but we've in terms of action. At least at the UN, the, the US's actions ha, uh, uh, have uh, remained um, steadfast and staunchly supportive of Israel. So finally, I want to play a clip of the President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations think tank, Richard Haas, also on MSNBC this morning, generally very supportive of the United States playing a leading role in the world saying what he thinks the United States' relationship to this conflict is becoming and what he thinks it should do next. Here's Richard Haas. 
The Biden administration has to be really careful here because we're beginning to look like enablers. We begin to look feckless. We criticize Israel every day. We get ignored every day. What can we do? Let me suggest three things that I'm comfortable with, particularly with one. One is in the U.N. We can stop giving Israel pretty much an unconditional veto. Why isn't the United States introducing resolutions of its own that it believes in? So we're almost out of time, Farnaz, but to one piece of that, Why hasn't the United States introduced a resolution of its own rather than just veto or oppose those written by other countries? It did. The the U.S. uh, introduced a resolution on the Security Council that had uh, the language that it wanted in condemning Hamas and in, um, um, you know, calling for protection of civilians and humanitarian access, better humanitarian access. But because the U.S. resolution did not include uh, the word ceasefire or demand a ceasefire, it was vetoed by Russia and China. And so there we will leave it. As I often say at the end of these conversations, we're not going to solve the Middle East today, uh, (laughs) but we try in good faith to represent the grievances and aspirations of the peoples on both sides, on all sides. I'm sure we often fall short, but we try. And that's our conversation for today with Farnaz Fasihi, who is the United Nations Bureau Chief for The New York Times. Thanks so much for joining us, Farnaz. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.